verses 25 through 33. Luke chapter 14, 25 through 33. If you're using the Blue Bible from the center of the table, it's page 968. At Hope Fellowship, we believe strongly in the authority of Scripture, and we believe that's the primary way that God talks to us, and it is authoritative, and so we spend a lot of time in it every Sunday gathering. And so I am currently, we are currently in the middle of probably a five-week series looking at what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Two weeks ago, we looked at how Jesus, walking along the edge of the Sea of Galilee, he called Uh, Peter and his brother Andrew, who were fishermen. And he called them, he said, follow me. And then he did the same with uh, John and James. And all four of those men were fishermen. And Jesus called them to follow him. He called them into a discipleship relationship, which is very much the picture of any Christian. We are a follower of Christ. And we saw that the word disciple actually means apprentice. And then last week, we looked at Matthew chapter 10. And we saw that the purpose of discipleship is to become like your teacher or like your master. And so if we are a Christian, we are a disciple of Jesus. We are being conformed into the image of the Son of God, as it says in Romans 8, 29. We are becoming like our King, Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of our sanctification and our Christian faith. We are becoming like Jesus. Today, we look at the requirements for being a disciple. He, not in, you know, there's some qualifications, there's some things he expects. There's some things he requires. Many don't want to have anything to do with it. So what are these qualifications? What what are the deal breakers? We're going to dive deep into that today from Luke 14, 25 through 33. Next week, we are in the week following, we are going to look at two very neglected areas of discipleship. Next week, and I'm not sure which passage we're going to be in next week. There's several that I'm considering, but I just need to land on one of them. Uh, But next week, it's going to be about family discipleship. And the week after that, it's going to be about the discipleship of nations. Because Jesus did say, go disciple the nations. Now, he certainly did have individuals in view when he said that. But he's thinking more than just this guy and that guy. He's thinking about nations and peoples worshiping So today we're in the middle, and today we're going to look at the requirements. So Luke 14, verse 25, I'm going to begin reading. Please just follow along with me. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. 
For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is the word of our God. Take a few minutes, four or five minutes, meditate on the passage individually, read it to yourselves, think through it as much as you can. Uh, If you have any questions about it, you know, follow those away and uh, we'll have a discussion in just a few minutes and uh, we'll have the opportunity to share your observations, ask your questions and uh, learn from each other about what Christ is saying. All right, so Jesus has a big crowd. That was pretty common in Jesus' day. He was doing some pretty neat stuff, right? And those things, miracles and some of the things he was teaching, he was attracting big crowds. And we see that in verse 25. One of the things that is generally true when Jesus is teaching the crowd is that he speaks in general ways. He's calling them to a really, really big thing. He's calling them to something that would be true for all of them. Now compare that with last week's teaching, and Jesus was speaking just to the twelve. And he was super specific with them about how their life was going to be in the decades to come. And he could do that because he was speaking to a smaller group. There was another time that Jesus was speaking to the crowds. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And Jesus, it's the longest recorded sermon from Jesus in the Bible. And he talked about a ton of different things. But one of the things he said in that is Matthew 7, 13. Jesus said to the crowd, he said, enter by the narrow gate. Anyone ever heard that before? He said, enter... By the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. In that passage from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about two options. He's talking about two ways of life. He's talking about a little narrow gate that only a few people are willing to go through, and he's talking about a narrow path that's really easy to fall off one way or the other. And he says that's the way that leads to life. But then he talks about an easier life that has a hard gate that's more attractive to many people, and many people are going to float through that gate, and they can kind of go and willy-nilly live their life however they want and do whatever they want. And Jesus says um, that way leads to destruction. But the narrow gate leads to life. And today we're going to talk about a way that leads to life. 
This message of Jesus that he's speaking to crowds, saying it is difficult to follow me, saying I require much of you. I want to be first and foremost. This message is not commonly preached, taught, communicated. The American church, we've had way too many decades, way too many generations where we have preached an easy gospel and an easy Jesus. Very much a sissy religion in a lot of ways where God is really okay with you being the Lord of your life. But that is not biblical Christianity, church. It is not biblical Christianity. And a recovery of the demands of discipleship that are spelled out in this passage is greatly needed. It is greatly needed. Not only do you need to obey and do exactly what he says in this passage, but we need a sweeping revival of Christians who are willing to renounce all they have and to love Christ above for anything and everything else. And when we see that, things will change. It's easy as an American church-going person to rant and rave and moan and groan over the state of the culture. But the reason the culture is doing that is because the church hasn't done Luke 14. We are here today with a nation that is falling apart because at some point in the past the church quit doing this. And generation after generation after generation, we had this vacuum formed. And the devil and his lies came in. And now things are falling apart all around this church. It is not easy to follow Christ. Jesus has terms for discipleship. If you want to be a Christian, then there are things you have to do. There are things that you have to do. Um, Three times in this passage... We have the words, cannot be my disciple. Cannot be my disciple. I Forgive me, I hate to even bring it up. And y'all know how I feel about this man. When I read that, the first thing I think of is Donald Trump on The Apprentice saying, you're fired. Okay, like, uh, sorry. I'll just go, go ahead and put that out there. But, you know, they're just, you have to do certain things. You have to live a certain and particular way of life in order to be his disciple. And if you don't live that way, he says to you, you cannot be my disciple. Three times in this passage, we see that. So the Christian life is not a life where discipleship is optional. What I'm sharing with you today is not the type of thing you can decide to say, well, I'm going to be a Christian, but not that kind of Christian. You can't say that. Jesus does not give you... That option. There is no first and second class Christianity. But Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, the good news that he is the king and his kingdom is here. We've looked at that quite a bit, haven't we? But Jesus' invitation to believe the gospel of the kingdom is just that it is an invitation, it is actually a command to have Christ be the king of every single area of your life. No area of our lives should be untouched by our Lord Jesus Christ. I think about our catechism, question number 30, which we'll go over in a couple months. 
Question 30 says, what is faith in Jesus Christ? And the answer, faith in Jesus Christ is receiving and resting on Him alone for salvation as He is offered to us in the Gospel. So what does it mean to believe in Jesus? It means to receive and rest on Christ alone for our salvation as He is offered to us in the Gospel. How is He offered to us in the Gospel? Well, He is Savior and Lord. He is King. He has authority over all. So if we're going to believe in Jesus, we have to receive Him. We have to rest on Him as He presented Himself to us. We don't get to say, you know, there's some things about Jesus I'm with, but other things I'm not. So I'm just going to pick and choose. No, we receive Him as He has presented to Himself to us. And He is, no doubt, a king with a kingdom. So we get to verse 26. And in 26, we're beginning to see that half-hearted discipleship is no discipleship at all. What God is saying to us is that we must love Him more than anyone else. Now verse 26 is kind of troubling to us. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. First time he said that, cannot be my disciple. But we, are we supposed to hate those closest to us? Doesn't the Bible say, love your enemy? Yes, it does. Well, then why do I have to hate my sons and my daughters and my wife, you know? Jesus is speaking in something called hyperbole. I hated English grammar class, okay? My wife and my kids love it. So, anyway, every once in a while I've got to try to like, put the brakes on because they're just speeding ahead of me. But one thing I do know is I recognize hyperbole when I see it. What is hyperbole? Well, that lady's smile is a mile wide. That's hyperbole. He's strong as an ox. Is he strong as an ox? Of course not. No, he's not. Not at all. We, hyperbole is when you say something so extreme that everyone else knows that you're not, you don't literally mean that. And that you're just trying to drive a point home. For, you know, okay, hate your wife. Doesn't Paul tell us to love your wife as Christ loved the church? It's a huge teaching about marriage from Ephesians 5. He's speaking in hyperbole. You shouldn't hate. You should hate that which is evil, Paul says in Romans 12. But that's the only thing we should hate. That's it. In Matthew 10, a few verses after the passage we were in last week, Matthew records Jesus teaching something very similar. And I think the way Matthew writes it down helps us to clarify it and know more about what it means. But Matthew 10, 36 and 37, Jesus taught this. He says, A person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He doesn't use the word hate there, but what he's doing is showing that that the disciple should have a proper relationship with 
Jesus in a proper relationship with others. And we can't love, I shouldn't love Jen, I shouldn't love Creed or any of my other kids more than I love Jesus. I, I shouldn't love my mom or dad more than I love Jesus. Should you love your mom and dad? Yes, you should honor them, the Bible says. Should you um, love your kids? Absolutely. But they must not be your greatest or ultimate love. Jesus is here saying in Luke 14, 26, to love me more. To make me your greatest love. And if you don't make Christ your greatest love, you cannot be his disciple. And Jesus wants to make sure that no one just adds him on as another part of their life. You know... You got relationships, right? Well, you know what? I have a relationship with Jesus, too, because he's my homeboy after all, right? Back in the 90s when I was a teenager, man, there was this Jesus is your homeboy shirt and all this stuff. It was stupid, okay? No. No, he's not. He's really not. You don't need another homeboy. You need a king. You need a savior. You don't just tack him on to be another thing that you spend time with or another person that you think about. Jesus is not just another day of the week, but he created the week. He isn't just another man, but he actually created men. Jesus is not just another teacher, for he is truth itself. And apart from him, no teacher can teach anything that is true. He isn't just another king or ruler. But Revelation 1.5 says he is the ruler of kings on earth. And all people bow down to him. I've heard stories from missionaries. They go to the other side of the world where people worship a lot of different gods. And man, that's really complicated because they're like constantly trying to keep them all happy. And no matter what they do, they can't, right? If they make one god happy, then the other one's mad at them and, you, you know... The, the, the mad God's going to get him, right? And, and so the missionary comes into the city and they're telling people about Jesus and they're like, oh yeah, Jesus, okay, sure. I got three million gods. Let's have another one. And he sounds kind of nice, right? That's a normal thing in polytheistic cultures and cultures where they worship many, many different gods. Faith in Christ means that you reject all other gods. And when missionaries go in to that setting and people just try to make Jesus one of many more gods, that is not who Jesus is. That is an unbiblical Jesus. And I want to tell you today, if you've ever thought about Jesus and been like, you know what, I think I have room for him too. If that's how you became a Christian, then my friend, you were most likely not a Christian. Jesus isn't just something you add on to the things you already have. Jesus comes in. He is king and he is Lord over all. Paul writes in Colossians 1.15 about Jesus. He says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. 
He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Matt, uh, Luke 14, 26 is about Jesus being preeminent. What does it mean to be preeminent? It means to be the best and the finest and the first among the best that are out there. We get to verse 27 and we see that we must bear our cross. Jesus says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. There's the second time we see that phrase. You cannot be my disciple. He says, bear your cross. Does that mean you have to carry your own sin? No, not at all. Jesus did all of that. Well, what does it mean then? It means that you have to carry whatever weight God has graciously assigned to you. It is a life of self-denial. That weight, that burden, that cross, it looks like the calling or the work or the mission or the ministry that He's given you to do. There's a lot of overlap in all of those things. God wanted Jesus to bear a particular cross, right? God wanted Jesus to bear a particular weight, and that was the sin of God's people. God had a purpose and a work for Jesus to do, It was not easy. It cost Jesus his life. Jesus also has a cross. I mean, God also has a cross for his people. It's a much lighter cross. But what is the work that God has assigned you to do? Carry that. And how are you to carry that? What else does verse 27 say? You have to bear your own cross, but, but that's not it. You have to bear your own cross and come after me, Jesus says. So there is a journey, there is a trip, there is a pursuit. We carry the cross while going after Jesus. We we don't get to enter into Christianity and just sit still or be stagnant. But we go with Jesus wherever He goes. Those 12 disciples He chose, did they stay in the same town or did they see the countryside? They went here. They went there, they went here, they got run out of there, and then they went over there, and then they tried to hide for a little while, it didn't work, and then they went to this city, and then they went to that city. Every bit of it was intentional with Jesus, and they went with him wherever he went. We must do the same as he leads us. A disciple does not set the direction for their life, but we are dependent on Christ. And here's the thing. While you're following Jesus, while you're pursuing Jesus, while you're bearing your cross, whatever cross it is that God has given to you, it might lead you to your death. The cross that God placed upon Jesus' back led him to his death. And sometimes God gives particular people particular crosses that lead them to their death. A first century Roman citizen during that time, and the Jews were in Roman territory, they would have probably seen someone bear a cross before. Keep in mind, Jesus was teaching this before he died. 
So at this time when Jesus is saying Luke 14, he hadn't bared his cross yet, bore his cross yet. One commentary said this, the disciples and the crowd had probably seen a man take up his cross. They knew what it meant. When a man from one of their villages took up a cross and went off with a little band of Roman soldiers, he was on a one-way journey. He would not be back. Taking up the cross meant the utmost in self-denial. There are other passages where Jesus taught, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. If you will follow Jesus, you must deny yourself. You must deny yourself. You cannot have yourself as you want to have it, as your sinful nature would have you have it, in Jesus Christ at the same time. So we get to verse 28, and Jesus tells a parable. He tells a story. He's got a point to make. Stories are helpful. Amen? Amen. He says in verse 28, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Most of you have seen where I live. If I want to build a fence around my property, I'm not going to started if I only have 40 feet of fence. I won't be able to finish. I love how Jesus starts out verse 28. Look at those first four words. For which of you? Jesus is speaking to a crowd and he's going to make it really hard for the guy who doesn't want to hear it to wiggle out of it. Jesus knows how to handle a wormy squirmy. Jesus knows how to handle people that are trying to evade him. He says, which of you? And I say to you today, which of you? Which of you? You can't just leave here and not deal with this passage. You can't just leave here and refuse to not wrestle with these words without taken a major, major risk with your future and your life and eternity. For which of you, these words are true. Think through these things. Don't just act like what I heard at church today is not important. This is the most important thing you're going to hear today, most likely. So Jesus starts out appealing to each person in the crowd. And he's talking about a building project. Uh, oh, sh- Go home and Google unfinished skyscraper. A few days ago, I was, I was, anyway, I was thinking about skyscrapers that are being built, and sometimes they don't get finished. And I'm meant to get a specific story and share it with you. But it happens. Tens of millions of dollars go into building something that's supposed to be bigger than any other building in the city, and then the job doesn't get done. How do you think people, how do you think the neighbors feel? We're supposed to count the cost. So when I sit down, different times in my life when I've sat down for an interview, a job interview, 
You know, they're interviewing me. They want to see what I'm cut out for. But I'm going to interview them also. I have questions for them too. If I'm going to work for them, I want to make sure I know what I'm getting into. And here, in this story, Jesus says if you're going to build something, you need to sit down. You need to sit down. I can recall when I was probably 10 to 12 years old, 12, 13 years old, um, my mom, my dad, my brother, we were preparing to build a house. And my dad was a contractor. We were going to build the house ourselves for the most part. And you know, my dad, had, he had this notebook. I, I have it now because I live in that house. But it was his materials list. He needed 35 of this type of board, and we needed 80 of that type of board, and we needed 200 2 by 4 by 8 foot boards to be the studs for the walls. And he, he just, days and day, hours and hours and hours and hours and weeks and weeks on end. I remember my dad making a material list for the home we were about to build. Most people don't see that process because your dad's not the contractor and you're not the contractor. But it's something, he had to sit down. Is it going to take me $100,000 to build this house? Or is it going to take me $200,000 to build this house? Do I have enough money to do that? I don't know if I have enough money to do that until I figure out how much I need. And if I want too much, then I have to scale back so that I can make sure after the roof's on, I have money for the carpet. I remember a house on 13, just it's between the uh, Dollar General and the state line. My friend Tamika Langston, some of you know her. Her parents started building that house around 30 years ago when I was a kid. And, you know, they had it almost completely closed in. And then they just stopped building it. And I didn't know it was my friend Tamika's house at the time. But every time we would ride by that house, I'm like, man, they haven't done anything on that house in months. And that house probably sat there six, I'd guess six months to a year. And nothing on it was touched. And I just remember as a kid, like, something must be really, really wrong. And I never found out what the problem was. But I remember just as an onlooker thinking something was really, really wrong. People took notice. And here, at the end of verse 29, it says... If you lay a foundation and you can't finish, people will begin to mock you. This person can't start what he finished. Don't be the type of person who says, I'm going to go with Jesus. And then two weeks later, I'm not going to go with Jesus. Sit down. Think through it. Consider what Jesus says. Let's look at a second parable, verse 31. In this parable, Jesus asked, us if we can refuse what he demands Jesus asks us can you refuse what he is demanding verse 31 what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000 and if not while the other is yet a great way off he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace Now, sometimes with a parable, you can take some things too far. You can dwell on details and you can come to an incorrect interpretation. It's very important when there's a parable that you make sure whatever conclusion you come to lines up with other parts, other teachings of Scripture. 
In this parable about the two kings, Jesus isn't saying that he is one day going to surrender to Satan or strike a deal with Satan. He's not saying that Satan's army is bigger. And he's not saying that he needs to work real hard to figure out if he can defeat him or not. Jesus is not the first king with a small army. We are. We're the first king. We're the ones with the small army. Just like we're the builder in the first story. But we're the first king with, does it say, 10,000 troops. In this parable, Jesus is the king with the larger army. And he wants you to sit down and carefully think through his demands and figure out how you should respond to him. He's coming, he's more powerful. Will you be ready? The call, the demands of Jesus require you to thoughtfulness and intentionality. Don't let every day go by just living for the day. Think through, what is it that I'm doing with my life? And then give yourself to that. The call and the demands of Jesus require us to come to thoughtfulness and intentionality. Do you notice both of these stories have the men sitting down? I don't like to sit down, y'all. I have a real men, y'all have a hard time sitting down. Just go, 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 you got so much to do, right? We are men. And this is true for all people. Ladies, kids, sit down. Think. Consider. The man that sits down will plan. The person that sits down should deliberate as the king with the smaller army did and think through the future. Have you done such a thing with your life? Are you doing it now? Are you in a season where you're thinking through, am I going this way? Am I going that way? Christ requires it all, everything, and nothing less. And if you don't want to give that to Him, then you are not ready to belong to Him. If you find yourself in that situation today, you should be afraid. You should be very afraid. Do not reject this King. But submit yourself entirely to Him. He is a loving King. He is a kind King. He is a generous and a merciful King. And you may come to Him laying it all down. And He will receive you as you are. But you cannot come to Him laying part of it down and holding on to the rest. True faith, true repentance is us laying it all down. We get to verse 33. We have a brief note on possessions and discipleship. Really, really short here. In the same way, therefore, not one of you can be my disciple if he does not renounce all his own possessions. 
What's that mean? Renounce all your possessions? Does that mean I got to sell my car and drop off all my clothes to Goodwill and go buy a whole brand new wardrobe? No, it doesn't mean that at all. As we've already seen in the last two weeks from 1 Corinthians 7, a lot of things about our life will stay the same when we come to Christ. There's some things that just don't need to change. God isn't telling you to get rid of all your stuff and get your new stuff. He's speaking, I believe he's speaking in hyperbole here, much like he was when he was talking about the relationships with the other people in your life. In verse 26, when he says, hey, your mom and dad, your kids and your wife, he was saying that you need to put them in their proper place. I need to be ultimate, and then they need to come next. I believe he's probably most likely speaking in hyperbole here when he says renounce all your stuff. You need to be willing to let go of it. Willing to let go of it. You know, I, you know, most of y'all know our story. I think we lived nine different places in 11, the first 11 years of my marriage. And now we've lived the same place for going on six years now. My biggest fear is that God will have me move somewhere and start over. I love my house. I like my land. I like my life. I like what I do there. I like raising my kids there. So much about it that I love. I, but if God says, hey, you got to move on here or move on there. If this season of life here would come to an end, it would be so very difficult. But I absolutely must, if God would have me go somewhere, and I'm not preparing to announce my departure. I have no intention of leaving, no plans, no hopes, no desires to do so. I'm just hoping that if God, if some of you just said, darn, I saw that. <laughs> but as a child of God, submitting my life to God, if he says it's time to go over here, son, I have to renounce all that I have. Saving faith requires us to trust. And renunciation is trust in action. Some of you may be familiar with the story of the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. There was a young man, came from a prominent family. He had a lot of stuff. The Bible doesn't give details, but I'm pretty sure it was a lot. Just based on the few things that are said about this man. And he, he had authority. He was some type of ruler. He was a very good man. He was a very moral man. He was bright and shiny on the outside. Had his mess together. Jesus said to him, You lack one thing. And he told him, He said, Go, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. See, when he spoke to the poor fishermen that we learned about two weeks ago, you know, they're working their butt off, long days and lots of sweat, manual labor. They probably got big muscles because of the type of work that they did. You know, they were probably just trying to earn enough money today to get through tonight and tomorrow. And Jesus said to those guys, come follow me. And they just left their nets and they went with him. He just said, come follow me. He didn't tell them to do A, B, and C first. But with this rich young ruler, before he says, follow me, 
He says, sell what you have. Give it to the poor. So you'll have treasure in heaven. And then came the command to follow me. And in Mark chapter 10, it says that the young man was disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This young man, by the standards of the world, he had everything he wanted. But Jesus, in His divine wisdom, and His just prophetic ability to be able to see straight through everything right to the heart of the matter, He knew that this man had another God. And this man's God was his stuff. So Jesus told him to sell it, and the man was disheartened. He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He left Jesus to hold on to his stuff. Is there any stuff that you're holding on to that Jesus is saying, you can't have that and me? Is there anything in your life? And, and I know you're pretty good. I got a feeling most of us have already worked through this, but I'm, I, I can tell you for sure not all of us have. Is that bottle better than Jesus? Is whatever ambition you have in life, is that more important to you than Jesus? The pattern for discipleship, the call of Christ on our lives, true biblical saving faith requires us to receive Christ as He has offered to us in the Gospel. And this Gospel, this good news, says that Jesus Christ is the King. That means He is first and foremost. So this call to discipleship is a call to radical lordship. If you're here today and you've been playing games with Jesus, if you're here today and you have this idol or that idol that you'd rather bow to than the one true king, cast those idols aside. Let them go. Come to Jesus. He receives screwed up, messy people every day. Amen. And He will receive you where you are. Not only... Is He just a King? But He is a merciful Savior. Church, He says, follow me. Let's let go of everything that keeps us from Him. Let's pray.